Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. What do we have in store this week, Fred? Well, well, as I mentioned before we hit record, we've got, we've got questions. Uh, a couple of oh. them, actually. I think there's three altogether floating around out of here, but we'll take a couple of them on. Um, one of them is by David, uh, and he, uh, and this might make a whole episode because there's, I think if we unpack it a bit, there's a bunch of stuff to think about in here. Um, so the, the gist of the question was, um, let's see, regarding Weibull distribution, can I get a scale parameter by only having a given failure rate? I think. So he's got a failure rate and he wants to determine the scale parameter, the uh, characteristic life of a Weibull distribution. If not, is there a rule of thumb I can use? And then it says, I often have to deal with COTS parts, uh, commercial off-the-shelf parts, I think is what that stands for, Mm -hmm. and custom parts with very little historical failure info. So the scale parameter is a bit tricky for me. I generally use the shape parameter of two for a generic start, if I have no other data, software is not always available. So any tips are much appreciated. I don't quite understand that last comment, but, um, software not being available. Um, you can make mistakes faster with software, but that's, I think, part of what I wanted to talk to you about. Well, maybe he's saying there's not like a software package out there to help him find the answer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's one of those where, and I've run into that. The only thing you have is a failure rate. You know, you have a fit, basically, or you have just a failure rate, and that's all the vendor has, and that's all they're going to give you. So usually the first thing I do is I check Mail Handbook 217 to see if that number is what they're using, and then I know they're just absolutely wrong. Right. (laughs) And just, it's having that number is worse than having nothing, in my opinion. Um, But let's say they, I don't know, did some testing or they're looking at their field data or they come up with a due diligent type of, but the only thing they offer you is failure rate and converting that to a Weibull distribution uh, opens up for me a whole pile of other questions. What's going on? But, uh, and I sent him a quick response, but what, what would be your first take on, on how would you respond to this kind of a question? Well, first take is to f- confirm the failure rate is the failure rate. Um, you talked about fits, for example. Yeah. Now, we all know who have been around a bit, know, we know that those fits, which are failures in times, which are how the electronic component industry uh, measures the failure rate or the hazard rate. So one failure in time represents one failure per billion hours. Yeah, you got to be careful if you're doing British or in, or American billion because I think millions and billions get reversed or somewhere along there. I'll change my my statement to one failure times ten to the power of nine hours. Yeah, and then some vendors want to make <laughs> sure that their products still look good because they want a, a something in front of the decimal point, so they'll put an asterisk on it saying it's one in ten to the sixth. Oh, there we you go. always got to be careful. They'll all call it fit, but they'll define it differently. Right. So let's just, but let's just say. Yeah. So you got get a, a fit. You got 8.2 fit, you know, whatever. 
Now, if you've been around, we know how the vendors get those numbers and they essentially test their capacitors and resistors and diodes in essentially benign conditions. They test them for an arbitrary small period of their life before they start to wear out, which means not even... Yeah, and if they test a lot of them and they often assume that it's a constant failure rate uh, and use a, um, drawing a blank on it, chi-squared type approach so if i test a thousand of them for a thousand hours at you know slightly elevated temperatures um sometimes not even powered uh then we know the failure rate is at least higher than that so we'll use that as a cutoff but it it makes a pile of assumptions that are just basically folly Right. But in, uh, if you look at something which has 100 fits or is advertised as having 100 fits, I, I'm trying to remember the math in my head because I use this example in some of my lessons. Mm-hmm. I, think it, I think it implies a mean time to failure of about 1,100 years. Yeah. Um, so electronic components have not, as a concept, been around for 1,100 years. Just to, So to suggest that you have a fit rate of 100 fits, which suggests you can – the mean time to failure is in the order of 1,100 years is obviously insane. But the reason we they get that is because they test these components in those benign conditions before things like dendritic growth and diffusion and delamination on the die set and all those other things that um, cause every single component to wear out, that never gets examined or tested. So it essentially test these things and see how, see how often they fail before they wear out. Well, but they also tend to ignore, and I've run into this, is there was one vendor that said they tested, I don't know, a gazillion units, and they had three censored pieces of data. I says, why were they censored? And he says, well, they failed. Okay. <laughs> why did you call them censored then and not include them in the data as failures? And he says, well, they failed for... Uh, uh, early life failures, premature failures. There was manufacturing defects. We don't count those because you're interested in how long it's going to live. And I was like, do you actually hear what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Uh, so beyond that, there's, I mean, so let's say somebody actually does a decent job. And I've run into that with the uh, um, IGBTs. There's a company that, and I'm drawing a complete blank on who they are. wish I could give them a shout out is on their site, they said, if you use it in a high-switching atmosphere environment where you're just turning this thing on and off a whole lot, then you're going to have this failure mechanism, which I think was wire bonding uh, delamination or uh, separation or failure. And here's the uh, equation and here's the life test uh, uh, data. It wasn't quite the full-on physics of failure thing, but it was done empirically, and they came up with a distribution for you and saying, if you switch it at this speed for this long, here's your probability of failure. And you could calculate it. And they had another failure mechanism to use it in a different mode, and they were very willing to get on the phone and talk through it with you and all that good mm-hmm. stuff. Vast majority are going to be a sales guy saying, oh, well, it's, you know, 800 million years uh, MTBF or MTTF. And, and that means that it has like a, a 8.2 fit. So you're good, right? No. <laughs> and then they don't know how it was derived. And then you know right. you're in trouble. But yeah, that's the, really the first step is, is the number you're trying to do something with, is that relevant? Some really do a good job and right. many don't. 
So, so step number one is, is do you have a failure rate or do you have some meaningless metric based on the contrived testing? The, the FIP example is essentially an industry-wide issue. The industry is aware of it. They don't care. The scenario you're talking about where people censored out failures they didn't like, counting, yep. that's, I suppose, individual company-centric, but it's prevalent. It's not a, you know, it's just uh, we don't like it, so let's not count it approach. That happens a lot. Oh, yeah. I even talk to people that say, well, once we, if something fails before the end of the test, which we're not supposed to have any failures, we add another unit to it so that we get the numbers of, of ones that pass all the time. Right. So it's, yeah, I, I'm always suspect when I look at a data sheet and they have um, three batches of 77 each and they all pass and it's just pass, 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 pass all the way down the line. And like, okay. Yep. So yeah, step one number one, sniff test you talk about in lots of podcasts and webinars we're part of is the failure rate actually the failure rate and all right so i think we talked that one through and the second one part is well let's just say you have the failure rate which allows you to estimate the mean if you're interested in that which then would if you were to magically know what the shape parameter of a weibull distribution that pr produced that data which gave you that mean estimate, you'd be able to come up with the shape and scale parameter, which would then be very useful if you were able to use that um, shape parameter. Um, one answer to that conundrum is to use um, Weibull tables or shape, shape parameter tables, and there are a few out there which say essentially, you know, if it's a ball bearing, expect a shape parameter of 2.1 and so on and so on. Yeah. Um, some of them are good, are good, some of them are useful, and some of them are not. Yeah, I'm thinking of one table. I don't even know if it's online anymore, but it was shape parameter for an electric motor. And it didn't specify what wattage electric motor or application or anything. Electric motors. Uh, shape parameter can range from 0.3 to 4.8. Which is less than useful because... Right. <laughs> And for those listening and who might not be up to speed with shape parameters and things like that, essentially a parameter is a characteristic of a bell curve-like shape that helps us understand how things fail. And each different failure mechanism or how your thing breaks tends to have a unique shape parameter. So uh, corrosion might have a shape parameter of 2.5. Uh, fatigue might have a shape parameter of 2.1. Fatigue in ball bearings or let's call it spoiling, you might have a different shape parameter. A ball bearing versus a roller bearing might have slightly different variations on that shape parameter. But as a rule, and it's a very useful rule, which has been demonstrated empirically over and over again, uh, things in the Weibull domain, uh, sorry, if something fails in a particular way in the Weibull domain, it tend to always have a particular shape parameter. And if that shape parameter is less than one, it suggests that damage already exists in a subpopulation of things you have, and which is very useful. So if you find you have a shape parameter of less than one, then you can start maybe talking to your manufacturing team and see if there's something going on that you need to talk, talk to them about. But if you have a guide which says it's anywhere between 0.3 to 4.8, uh, <laughs> says, well, uh, one end of the scale, all your, ball, all your ball bearings might fail due to infant mortality associated with manufacturing defects or 
or your ball bearings might fail out with a relatively steep slope and They'll anyway, go three years to... in a day and then all start failing pretty quickly. Yeah. It's yeah, there's so the going to a tables, I don't generally recommend that because you need to know more about where that data is. But I'd back up one step, Chris. I, and I think you touched mm-hmm. on it briefly, is that well, what's the failure mechanism for your application of using this component? You know, and you might use an FMEA or you might think a fault tree or you might use your historical data and failure analysis stuff of of parts that you're actually using and what kind of things are you seeing. Um, But if you're seeing a solder joint fatigue, right, well, there's lots of papers about different geometries of solder joints and solder constructions and different applications and thermal cycling. And you could, you know, kind of come up with, you know, how, how will that sort out? to work back to a, a, a Weibull distribution or or an, another appropriate distribution. It doesn't have to be Weibull. Weibull's pretty versatile, so it gets you close on lots of stuff. But I find the comment of, well, I'll if I just assume it's a, a wear out with a shape parameter of two, yeah, you can calculate it. Um, and assuming the failure rate is good, um, you'll get, you can plot something. Uh, is it relevant to the failure mechanism that actually is at, at play here. It gets more complicated when you got a system that has dozens of failure mechanisms happening at you. Do you? But uh, I, I would start there is, is how is it going to fail? And I ask vendors in our application, how is it likely to fail? Oh, it won't fail. Well, then let me talk to somebody that has intelligence is usually what I say. <laughs> well, the, I mean, you raise a good point. I mean, the premise of when I said, yeah, look for that, uh, you know, look for shape tables it was premised on knowing how your thing's going to fail. We talked about corrosion and stuff. So, of course, yeah. you really need to understand how your thing's going to fail. And uh, and you raise really good points that, uh, that there's lots of literature out there that you can use if you need to to try and understand how that particular thing is going to fail, especially if it's like a, a diode or a laser or something like that. They're, they're sophisticated components, but at the heart of they're really, really simple. Um, it's, diode, diodes are really simple, but they're getting increasingly sophisticated in terms of how they're manufactured and how they're, you know, uh, crystals are even more increasingly perfect but Mm -hmm. the technology hasn't changed nor has the way they fail we're just pushing it out to the right a lot more so there's a lot of really good information out there yeah so fine go do the technical literature search figure out and the hard part is is this great paper that has a great equation and all the other good stuff on it is that relevant to your application and if it was written for aerospace engine cowling running at forty thousand feet um and you're doing a uh, you know telephone handset on an office uh, desk. Um, is that relevant? <laughs> you know, it's like right. you know, think through is how and where that mechanism occurs and all that good stuff, and then and then go for it. The other question I had that came out of this one of my thoughts is, well, what do you need the distribution for? If if what you have is just the failure rate. Um, you know, if you're the hard part I have with it is if I only have a failure rate, I don't know. It doesn't come oftentimes. It doesn't come with what duration it's applied to. Where is it relevant? Is it good for a year? Is it good for 10 years? Is it, how is it 
relate to over what time period is that failure rate? And then, so I don't know how you could possibly get to a distribution. That go, does that not go back to the fit conundrum where you ask how long does this failure rate apply to? Because the fits that we get from the electronic supplier people yep. are all specific to the first beautiful, perfect operational life of these components where they don't start to wear out of the grade. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. No, they, it's what failures in time and the time and units on these things is in an hour. Usually it's, here's the, the, the portion or the, the fraction of units that will fail in an hour and it's mm -hmm. one in a million will fail in an hour kind of thing. Um, going to the failure mechanism helps us understand is this, you know, a, a decreasing failure rate or hazard rate or increasing hazard rate gives us some clues as to where that sh kind of uh, shape parameter would be. But the, the, if you've at, got absolutely nothing, right? You don't have any experience. You don't. You can't find any papers on this technology, and you really don't know how it's going to fail. And I'm, you know, hesitant to say it is well. The only information you got is that it's. If you don't know how it's going to fail, choose this shape parameter of one, and and, and then. Or don't use it and <laughs> just say it's unknown and or go run your own accelerated tests and go figure it out and go figure out how it fails and works in your system. If it's really important, go get the data one way yeah. or the other. If it's not important, ignore it. If it's an 8.2 fit and you got a thousand components in your system, it won't matter whether you have a distribution there or not, you know, uh, so it, but if, if it's on the border, I don't think you have any alternative but to assume that it's exponential and just go with that. And it might not be wonderful. It might give you a inflated, if it does really have a wear out mechanism, it'll inflate the, the expected failure rate early. And if it's really has an infant mortality type problem, it'll underrepresent it, but be very clear about that assumption and its impact. I think we've talked about scenarios where um, we, we've, talked about the hypothetical challenge of modeling the reliability of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. We don't spend a lot of time coming up with white ball plots for the chassis of a vehicle. We know chassis will eventually fail, but they're sort of, sort of the last thing to rust away for a yeah. vehicle that's been left. The dashboard will crack and fall off be long before it right. happens and, and the, the water pump and the oil pan and everything else will fall apart long before that. Yeah. Right, so we're not too fast about chassis wearing out. The only time that chassis really fail is when we make a welding mistake or something like that, which is something that's very concerning and something you need to address. But <laughs> Or if you know somebody that likes doing long drives on an ocean beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually not good for your chassis. <laughs> right. And, um, but uh, I think that what we're trying to say is that you don't need to – use a micr micrometer to measure the reliability of a chassis. Right. You just need to have a rough order of magnitude. We know how strong steels are. We know how strong welds are. They're easy to test. We've been doing this. I mean, chassis technology has remained fundamentally unchanged for decades. Yes, the chassis are more sophisticated because we can more easily bend metal and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with finite element analysis and everything else, 
we are on top of chassis technology. Um, what is not as reliable is, for example, the insulation on the stator windings for an electric motor that runs an electric vehicle. Yep. They're getting much better, but the insulation will degrade before the chassis rusts away. Yeah. Oh, and, and battery so, technology too. Just battery is another one. Yeah. But we anyone can we can sit here and think about any number of different ways a vehicle can fail that's obviously going to drive the uh, characteristic life, so to speak, of of a vehicle more so than the chassis. And so if you got the failure rate, but the thing you're and, and if you also know the failure mechanism, then um you might be able to make a judgment call that, you know what, this failure mechanism doesn't really matter. So we'll just stick with the failure rate because it's not going to ruin our day. But um, I, we, we've come across plenty of scenarios, especially in the space domain, where the main driver of electronic component technology is cell phone or mobile phone or, or smart devices, mm -hmm. which have a very short lifespan and customers or the market demands functionality way more than longevity these days um, upgrading a phone every couple of years is just how people roll because they want the next level of functionality and the market has responded by getting electronic components which are ever smaller and with that comes a cost that they are less and less reliable well so they've, they've decreased from 20 years to 10 years but i only want it to work in my phone for three years so i'm good right and then you have the space industry people who essentially can't, they're not big enough to influence the electronic component market. So they're not going to get, you know, capacitors and diodes and everything else. And in the integrated circuits is, is what we're mainly talking about here. They're not going to get the feature sizes back up to what they used to be in the 1990s. Well, they're I, just not making it. They're not making the, it's not right. economical for these fabs to make the, the what, 200 nanometer uh, chips, you know, or the, the the larger feature sizes. I'm trying to think of the scales that these things are in. They're incredibly small now, but if they're making a, a wafer that's going to create a thousand components, they're not going to make a couple of them that are just with the big chunks on it. <laughs> it's, it's, no. it's not in their interest to do that. And I think too many space industry players have complained about that as opposed to just embracing it. Mm -hmm. And so they've wanted to have some sort of analysis or what just what what do i use are you happy are you willing to test no no it is we just want to we just want to have something that's really a really robust understanding of how reliable these things are uh but we're not in the business of testing right you know well then you're not going to know <laughs> okay. you're just not going to know or you pay yeah. somebody a lot of money to go do it for you um right. yeah no it, it's a, so it's so I think we talked about a handful of different things. And I think the key way to do this is be very careful about the set of assumptions you're making and their impact. And, and there's a couple of steps there. Well, do you need to know it? You know, what do you, what is it? Is it relevant? Uh, another is, is the failure rate that you actually have in your hand worth anything? Uh, where did it come from? And that may provide some clues as, you know, if they're testing it, in a particular manner that may suggest what kind of failure mechanisms that they're looking for. And that maybe gave you some clues. Um, talk to somebody that actually knows how this product or this device is going to fail. Uh, it, usually vendors and the people designing these things know. Uh, the sales guys are loath to tell you about the product's failure mechanisms, So don't talk to them. Uh, and, and, you know, 
there's literature on all kinds of cool stuff, uh, your own history, your own failure mechanism or uh, root cause analysis uh, on stuff that you're seeing failing. Uh, there's a handful of different options, but there's not a, a carte blanche saying, oh, just assume a, a, a shape parameter of whatever and you'll be fine. Yeah, the math works, but the underpinning assumption is probably very likely to get you in trouble and give you, it'll give you a number, but it, it won't be very useful. The, the one t challenge to that I would say is like, imagine again, let's go back to ball bearings. You know, I've got ball bearings on the mind, um, mm -hmm. but a ball bearing manufacturer who manufactures the next generation of ball bearings year after year after year, if they, and some do, if they have a really good understanding of the shape parameter for their roller bearings, for example, their mm -hmm. self-aligning roller bearings, yep. it's reasonable to suspect that when they test the ne next tranche of ball bearings, that the shape parameter will be essentially the same. And the good ones, not only once they assume that, they also confirm it by making sure that their failure mechanisms look the same. We know what... Mm -hmm. It's usually spoiling. Usually spoiling creates these, causes these things to fail. Yeah. Um, so if they see that the brand new version of the ball bearing is failing due to spoiling, just like the previous last version, and ball, all ball bearings will fail. So the fact it fails does not necessarily mean it's bad, but it's a pretty robust assumption to to uh, take the shape parameter from the previous generation of models and apply it to this one, especially if there hasn't been huge wide scale changes to the design itself. Yeah. Now I ran into one group that was, it was at a conference or at a trade show, I, I should say it was, and they were self-lubricated bearings. I'm like, hmm, that sounds different. Why do you do that? And they coat it. It was like a Teflon coating they were putting on this thing. And, and it was, I don't know, it was a trade magazine somewhere. There was an article written about don't use these things. And they had pictures of them. It turned into like gum, gooey, oh sticky stuff on the outside of it because they intermixed in the chase and the heat of it pretty much melted the polymer went over its melt point mm -hmm. and it just turned into goo <laughs> it's like well that's kind of the opposite of what a bearing's supposed to do but um yeah it, you got to be careful if if they they change the surface morphology of it and the chemistry of it and all the other stuff it, you got to ask some questions but if they're using the same uh, manufacturing process and, and basic same it's just a slightly different size uh, well that'll get me started into another whole story about connectors uh, size matters <laughs> with their failure rate <laughs> claims uh, but it's it's goes back to you got to think through what's the failure mechanism and uh, the more you know about that the safer you are at making some assumptions but if you have nothing you got to be really careful because um, you really get in trouble quick. Now, I'm quite sure, you know, in just 20, well, geez, almost 30 minutes, we hand, handled a handful of these different elements of what to think through on this stuff. Uh, I think the bottom line is be careful, is that mm -hmm. it, there isn't a magic eight ball of saying, oh, 8.2 failure rate means I have a Weibull of blah, blah, blah. It, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's out there. Now, I could be wrong. Somebody out there may know of a, a clever way to get around this and, and to deal with it. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear about it. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR and let us know. A couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Uh, this question came in um, through my about 
page on Ascendo Reliability. So that's uh, another way you can get a hold of any of the hosts on the show is through Ascendo's About pages. We have contact information there. Or you can find all of us on LinkedIn. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us for your question or comment. And most likely you'll get an answer pretty quick. And two, you probably will get uh, some more discussion on it in a podcast episode. Yeah, what's with you and the ball bearings today, Chris? It's not. It's just that um, I'm I'm generating courses and I've got ball bearing as one of the central examples. So okay. because I'm working so hard on courses, it's all ball bearings these days. <laughs> it's just, just... <laughs> all right, all right. I just wondering, wondering if you're losing your marbles there. I had to, I had to let you get that one in there. Right. Losing my balls. Yeah, whatever. All right, cool. Well, <laughs> hey, I got another question. Let's uh, hit record again and we'll talk about another question that we got. No worries. Talk to you soon, Chris. Cheers, right? See you later. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.